It's time for the announcement. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. Does Santa Claus sleep I with his whiskers him. outside or in? Always sleep in the map. Cold air makes him grow. Johnny, naughty. <laughs> Gary, nice. <laughs> Veronica, very nice. In your dreams, playboy. How low can you get giving Kris Kringle a parking ticket on Christmas Eve? What's next? Rabies shots for the Easter Bunny? Right. Yeah, it must be Italian. Well, I think that's just fragile. Oh, oh yeah. we're going to put on an APB on Big Bird. Attention all units. Watch Yellow Bird, silly voice. Where's Eddie? He usually eats these things. Oh, not recently, Clarky. Read the squirrels were high in cholesterol. Don't ask him for a favor, cause his nastiness increases. No crust of bread for those in need. No cheeses for us, Mises. And since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations. I'm in big trouble. Oh. No. 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 For all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thief. I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. It's Christmas Eve. It's, it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. What the... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Do those pedals! Do those. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Almost lost my cool there. I'm Mitch. I'm Stephanie. And we're the Film, Film Underdogs. Underdogs. Welcome back to Film Underdogs. This week, Stephanie and I are going to be talking with Dylan Hillerman. He's a local filmmaker. He's also responsible for the Guignol Fest, which is a local horror film festival, one that we worked on this year. Welcome, Dylan. Hey, how you doing? We're doing great. Excellent. You went to see uh, John Waters, huh? Yeah, we went to see John Waters about two nights ago at the Aladdin Theater. Well, how was it? It was a lot of fun. That guy has some of the most amazing flow of any speaker I've ever seen. He's a... consummate he's a he's a he's a real comedian i mean he does this his whole presentation is mostly canned i've seen a video of him from previous years you know using a few of the same lines or stories or whatever but but uh yeah he's just really funny and he's he's one of those guys i saw him in 89 at chico state as well a number of years ago right before uh crybaby came out and i remember just thinking to myself wow for a guy that dirty my grandmother could come here and actually enjoy the show (laughs) He doesn't use any swear words. He just talks around them. You know, it's he's very entertaining. Well, that's good. Yeah, and I always like uh, funny. You know, I like scary, but I like funny uh, just as much. I don't uh, discriminate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did uh, hear something about John Waters with his hitchhiking days or something. Like he did that in the past. Yeah. Uh, gosh, what was it? Is it called Carsick? I, I think, think so. the book is. I, got, I actually uh, got that book as a gift recently, I think for my birthday, and I, I haven't gotten around to uh, picking it up yet, but um, I have a small stack of books I just haven't uh, had time this year to read. Yeah, I heard him talk about it with his interview with Terry Gross, like, 
last year or the year before or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the bygone era of hitchhiking that I missed as a Generation Xer. <laughs> Must yeah, I, I kind of was outside of that, too. By the time I was uh, old enough to where it was even a thing, you know, there were so many horror stories about it. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the many boogeymen that my, you know, parents raised me on. I was like, don't hitchhike. Yeah. It was one of the big ones. <laughs> don't talk to strangers. Right up there. Although I did, uh, I, I wouldn't say we hitchhiked, but uh, I was in a truck once with my friend that broke down between Sacramento and Chico, and we did have to put our thumbs out. We are just kind of hoping for the best. And uh, we lucked out, and there was this guy with a tow truck who actually... He was in his car, but he went to his tow company, which is only like a mile down the road, came back and towed us for free. Turned out he actually had been studying to be a minister growing up and then just wound up in um, working with uh, automobiles and towing companies or whatever. But I thought that was a kind of a neat little moment. Like, wow, your life could have come this other direction, but you're still saving people. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're probably doing a good job. <laughs> yep. Um, so how did you get into making films? Oh, man. Uh, I would say it's kind of a step-by-step, but the earliest movies I ever made was probably in 1981 with an 8mm camera that my grandmother gifted me. It was one of those old ones you had to wind up, start out making some backyard movies with my friends, superhero films, and then that led to attempting animation and then video sort of uh, crept up on everyone, and we were making backyard movies as far as the uh, 15-foot cable could reach. You just, uh, you know, plug it into the VCR and stick the camera out the back door, and your set is that backyard for every movie you make. <laughs> <laughs> but we made the best of it. It was, uh, you know, like a learning process, and so we really focused more on choreography or fight choreography and um, a lot of battles. We did a lot of battles. That also uh, led into some of my first Rod Serling impersonations. You know, just making sketches. In a sense, it was a lot of comedy. And then that led into uh, high school, which uh, around the time that the California lottery kicked in, around 86 or so, had a teacher who uh, had enough vision to secure some of the lottery money and create a video instructional class because he knew we were making these backyard movies and he thought he wanted to sort of foster what was already happening. So we created what was called Sonora High Instructional Television. And if you just uh, work out the acronym for that, that that name was shut down really quick. And we just became Instructional Television. But, uh, yeah, so it sort of (laughs) continued. We did a lot lot of sketch, a lot more sketch comedy, developed another more complex superhero story called Ampuman. Then we uh, that sort of segued into a friend of mine, Named Jared Tipton moved into town in '87, but like it was our senior year. Turned out he knew how to do latex cast moldings of, of body parts, and he was really into horror films. And a friend of mine said, "You got to meet this guy." And so we started to do. Within about a year, we think we cranked out about seven horror films, and wow. uh, and we had a you know by then we had a camera with a battery, so we could go anywhere. And we lived in a Sonora. Uh, Tuolumne County kind of foothills area so we had a lot of uh, pretty awesome backdrops to play with in terms of uh, what looked like sort of wild west wilderness and so naturally we that went into a bunch of you know what led to vampire films and 
went to Chico State and sort of lost that time about five years of nothing. I didn't, none of my friends were interested in that sort of thing. And so it was just sort of spent doing other things more socially and just getting to meet people and expand the world and, you know, with uh, connections and people who don't do or aren't, you know, aren't interested in anything that you're interested in. And then uh, that slowly came around and ended up in a theater troupe for about six years, moved to Portland. And that led to a horror film contest that I encountered a number of years ago. About, this is about eight years ago. It was called the 666 Fest. It was in its third year. And they had five teams, I think, at that point. And I entered a movie myself, made a short film in three days. And it, I thought it was pretty good. Tested it on three different uh, DVD players. It seemed to be working just fine. And got to the festival and it didn't play. Aww. Ouch. It was a minor disappointment. I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm not a sore loser or, you know, I don't get really perturbed by accidents. I just say, oh, okay, whatever, come back next time a little stronger. I just loved the idea of the festival. I thought it was really cool what they were bringing together and the people that were making these films, you know, were very creative. So I just thought, gosh, you know, I hope this keeps going. Well, later that year, the guy who was running it got in big, big, big trouble with the co-owner of the bar that they were uh, playing these movies at. Big trouble in about five different directions. So he essentially got ran out of town, and I asked one of the co-owners of this bar if I could continue it and change the name and change the rules so that they're a little bit more doable and also bring it to his other bar. He owned two at the time and still does. And so he said, yeah, let's do it. And so that's why uh, Guignol Fest started at Red Flag was... um, to try to keep that festival alive. So in a sense, I've been helping other people do their horror films, and I've directed at least one in that time, but I've just been a curator for other people's films and trying to keep people uh, active. All the people I know who have gone to film school or just uh, have the obsession and the, uh, the drive or just you know the, the love of, of movies and horror films in particular, I wanted to get them off the bar stools for at least just one weekend and... Uh, you know, put their equipment where their mouth is and make a good movie. And it's been growing, which is awesome. I'm really thankful that uh, it, it has grown. It's It's been a slow burn, but that's the sort of by design. I didn't want to put a bunch of money into it the first year and have the whole thing blow up in my face. So the first year, I think we only had three teams. So competition was stiff. <laughs> and literally about three near fist fights broke out in the bar. Oh. It was over. You, you think the complaints were bad this year? Oh my God! It was like the Wild West then, <laughs> and that was all seven damn years ago. <laughs> so uh, we had to, you know, douse the flames and hope that everybody was still in. And then it turned out everybody got over their egos a little bit and came back the next year. And well, at least two out of the three came back the next year. So the following year was more of just padding it out and playing a lot of other things and uh, things that people had done in the past, plus these two new movies. And didn't make it a contest that year. It was just a big kind of, you know, they just agreed to do the movies and realized that there's no no incentives. But it, so it kept it alive, at least. There was still a pulse. And then the following year, we had four teams. And then the year after that, I think we had six. And it just kept kind of snowballing year after year. So, yeah, I mean, which is nice because it seems like the uh, popularity of horror films in general has been spiking in, in tandem that way, I think, just in a sense, culturally. Uh, with all the, you know, judging from all the television shows and the, the movies that have been coming out and the money they've been making. Yeah, there does seem to be a push lately to more horror-based TV, I've noticed. 
and horror films are starting to make a good comeback in the major films as well. Indeed, yes. Almost too many for me to even keep up with. Yeah, I'm always surprised, kind of get into a project, I'll be directing a play for a number of months, and then I'll think to myself, gosh, I haven't really been keeping up. People keep coming to me who have been interested in horror films far less than I have, and they're telling me stuff I've never heard of. You know, uh, For example, one of the directors for Gagnol Fest, uh, my friend Richie, has been involved for the last four years, I think, and he didn't have anything to do with them until this festival, and it just turned to, you know, flipped a switch in him. So he, you know, every October, he'll watch about two or three a day, all month long, wow. and, um, you know, and definitely gives him nightmares. I had to tell him, like, go easy, man. You, know, like, you just started. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's limits to the, uh, the psychic defenses sometimes. You know, this stuff is, some, some of this stuff is real. <laughs> yeah. Really intense. But, uh, yeah, at the same time, you know, so I'll get on the internet and I'll jump into a, a YouTube thing, you know, trailers for 2015 upcoming and just binge on all these amazing looking horror films coming out. And then I'll hear them come out and I'll get, you know, hear the mixed reviews or people say, oh, wow, it's, you know, best thing since sliced bread. And I, you know, I still haven't seen, for example, the following. I can't wait to see that. Hmm. I've heard good things, um, but I haven't seen it yet. Or it follows is what yeah, I need yeah. to say. Not the following. <laughs> is that the one that you said you'd seen, Stephanie? I haven't seen it. I just know about it. <laughs> ah, okay. It follows? Yeah. It sounds like it's got something going on. I'm not sure. I've heard, you know, everybody seems, there's a lot of also uh, opinions out there who uh, people seem to just sort of automatically, well, it was okay. It was like, what are you, it's just a movie, man. You know, <laughs> did it did it entertain you for an hour and a half? Was it cool? Did it, did it make you jump a couple times? It Then it worked, you know. <laughs> exactly. Good. <laughs> You know, I think people's expectations are super, super high. You know, not everybody can be the exorcist, hmm. you know, or Texas Chainsaw. You know, those, even they, those movies didn't think they were going to be those movies. It's sort of like a alchemy at certain points, you know, when, when things really work out. It's almost like some is greater than the parts. Yeah, there, there's a lot of movies uh, that have come out recently that I have not caught and uh, a few that I have. And honestly, I can't remember some of the recent ones because they weren't that good. <laughs> well, I know I think, the movie that we're going to be reviewing for this episode is actually Krampus, which is supposed to be coming out tomorrow, I believe. That looks so, fun. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to that just to see where uh, where they take that. You know, that's going to be an interesting watch. So, definitely, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it, I was just thinking about that because it just this little memory uh, passed my mind. Uh, in the mid-'80s when Harlan Ellison, the you know science fiction writer, was a uh, creative consultant for the, the 80s Twilight Zone, he wrote a script. I, don't, I think it was called Knackles. He wasn't using Krampus uh, per se, but he, was, he meant the same thing. It was about a, you know, a dark Santa or an evil Santa. And... It was the only episode that got completely censored, cut from the entire programming. They never showed it. Uh, the only thing they, they were able to do was publish the script in the Twilight Zone magazine back when Carol was uh, editing that. Uh, and I remember being annoyed by the thought, you know, that in this day and age, you know, censorship still happens. And, of course, the, I guess the reason was, the reasoning behind the, you know, the, the, the network weasels was uh, it was going to offend Christians. Mm. <laughs> And I was like, what? We're talking about Santa. He's just, you know, it comes from a, a pre-Christian thought process, you know, uh, that was sort of, you know, like a lot of saints, just sort of absorbed, you know, in, in terms of the marketing of uh, the church. Lots of people's gods were absorbed. And so I thought that was silly. 
first of all, you know, we're talking about a, you know, just an evil Santa. <laughs> yeah. We're not talking about, uh, you know, Mel Gibson's the, whatever the heck that movie was. The Passion of Christ. Yeah, the torture. <laughs> <laughs> that other horror film. Yeah, I just thought that was odd. But so that, anyway, this is part of the reason I'm really looking forward to this Krampus uh, movie. Is uh, maybe like, okay, maybe we can see something I missed when I was a kid that I was denied of by censors. Well, but, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot better than whatever Twilight Zone came up with, you know? Because they yeah, can actually yeah, they, show a lot more than what you'd be able to see on that. Definitely, yeah. I'm sure it's going to be uh, shocking. I'm just just judging from the images, the posters I've seen, the, this, uh, the figure of Krampus is uh, terrifying to behold. <laughs> yeah, that movie uh, Crimson Peak, I wanted to see that, but I still haven't seen that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, who directed that? Guillermo del Toro. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Is it is it a uh, is it a ghost thing? Yeah, like a okay. period piece ghost thing. Yeah, Got it. British. Got it. Yeah, I, I heard. There's yet another movie that came out where the the reviewers were almost bipolar, and I was like, you know, that's why I just don't anymore. Even when I were uh, direct plays anymore. Uh, in the past, you know, actors would always bug me. One of the, you know, out of the many things that actors love to bug me about is, uh, when's the reviewer coming? You know, they love to see the name in print. And this is in that segue between, you know, print and the Internet when I was just like, you know what? I, I can put you on the website. How about that? You, you don't really want to be in print because most don't see theater and they would really rather be seeing a rock show than reviewing our play. So they're going to be jerks and they're going to sneak out an intermission. They're going to lie about it. And they usually do. Or they're going to pass out because they're too drunk. So I don't even ask reviewers to review my show anymore. Um, to me, the review is just having the audience be full, which is what we've been having. So, you know, that's, to me, just a testament to the hard work that the actors, you know, and the other crew members uh, bring to the table. Is, uh, you don't need a review when everyone in the audience stands up and doesn't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, that's you... a good indication right there. Yeah, yeah, they just hang out like, wow, can we really talk to these freaks? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> People like you, they'd love to hear their, you know, your feedback, and so yeah, but yeah, reviewers, Ugh. lost art. Well, I think a big part of the problem there is a lot of reviewers, whether it's small time, big time, whatever, they tend to get a little more uh, maybe full of themselves or something. I don't know, but a lot of times when I see remo- reviews for movies. I pretty much figure it's about the opposite whenever it comes from the critics. I'll listen to what people have to say, but when it comes to the critics, it's like, eh, you know, you're pretty much down on any kind of horror movie anyway, so it's got to be absolutely amazing before they'll even look at it, so. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, embarrassed to say it. I have friends who will probably throttle me for even bringing it up, but uh, I like superhero movies. <laughs> I have uh, friends, hardcore horror fans, who just think that they're ruining Hollywood, and maybe they are, but, uh, you know, I, I do have a soft spot for it because I did read those comics too, and so, I, you know, whenever, you know, that you know, like this new Civil War thing with Iron Man and Captain America, I peeked at the trailer and I geeked out like crazy and jumped up and down a little bit, like, oh my God, they're fighting, it's great, it's great. <laughs> And, but I can't say this to my zombie friends, you know, because <laughs> they'll just have my head on a platter. But, uh, but you know, like I again, it'd be like movies like that. They ch- they tend to get pretty good reviews. Uh, there's other movies, you know, say Transformers will get like a 
really, you know, lambasted, which they tend to deserve. They're pretty over the top and too busy for me, you know. But yeah, there's like, a, you know, the, the problem with these days is um, there's too many movies. There's more movies than there are eyeballs. Mm. You know, everyone's making a movie these days. Even I'm starting to make a movie next year. And, uh, you know, I hope to God anyone sees it. I know my friends will see it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, apparently like, you know, just 10 years ago or whenever, maybe it was more than that. And there was, say, about 300 films, you know, feature films that were released in a, in a year. And then like last year, I think it was like 1500 was what I heard. Jeez. Yeah. 1500. Yeah. A lot of movies. I mean, I, I can't, I don't, I can't spend the time to watch 1500 films in a year. <laughs> you know? So well, there's also so many, uh, films that are made that don't get the big releases and stuff. And there's so many more. It's like, probably tenfold of what's actually ever released or more. And so you end up with uh, all kinds of movies that go under the radar, too, that yep. um, they don't get that big release, but a lot of them are just as good as any other movie. So Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's the, uh, the, the danger of it is you might have some real winners and geniuses out there that are completely ignored because of the noise out there. So, yeah, it's... Uh, odd time to be wanting to make a movie i should say but at the same time um uh, i uh encourage everybody to do it you know paint their painting there are people in town i know who are making movies and full-length films at that and not necessarily my my uh genre or style or something i would do or you know even as a as a stage director from back in the 90s i even look at their acting selection and go god why'd you cast that person <laughs> when there's so many other better actors out there who don't get the, the press, you know, similar to the films, just, you know, the actors themselves are, are amazing performers in this town who aren't necessarily trying to get their name out there. But when I, I see them and say one thing, you know, even something I direct and it's like, dear God, no one knows about this person, you know, and you got to hold on to them like gold. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, without saying, you know, this is my actor, you know, I get, <laughs> I, I think that cross-pollinization is also important in creative projects. I think that, uh, you know, after things like in Yolfest, I, I, one of my favorite things is to hear that, say, some people from one team and another, some people from another got together and made a movie for someone else's festival or, or just for their own whatever, you know, creative uh, process. I was even in someone else's movie this year. Uh, Aaron Lyon, who's been with Guignolfest from the beginning, from before I was even involved in 666, she was doing stuff for them. And she did something for 48, and I, uh, she needed a, a male character who basically has a leg wound and doesn't do anything but lie on his back the entire film, so I turned to that. And that was fun. And then you were in Staying Alive? Or is that what you're talking about? Or? Oh, uh, that's a different one. That was, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah Fest, uh, Staying Alive was also a last-minute thing, and I had only done that one other time before, and that was about four years ago, I believe, and I played a drug dealer in that one named uh, D-Bag. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And uh, in, in that one, too, I wore shades just to sort of, you know, just so it wasn't immediately obvious. And, I, you know, I didn't th think of it as being a, uh, you know, I'm not giving these guys some kind of seal of approval. It was just more of like, hey, anybody can ask me to do this, and I'd show up. I'd said it in the past, but uh, it's never been a hard and fast rule because this year there was 15 teams as opposed to four years ago when there was five or one or six. Yeah, There were a lot of films, and 
it's amazing what people came up with on such a short uh, time frame. Yes, yes, it was. It was uh, miraculous to see that many teams at once do the thing because just two years before it was, we had almost doubled the number of teams in almost just two years. So there was definitely an exponential increase in in uh, participation. Yeah, it's, it is. It's constantly boggles my mind what people can crank out in just three days, or you know, technically two in a lot of cases with the uh, people's availability on Monday not being, you know, with work starting and all. Yeah, um, that was the uh, rough part for us. Was you know, I didn't have Monday off, so it's like, well, I hope everything is done because it's all I can do. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I threw that extra day out as just sort of a, in a sense, just sort of a. If you have the time situation, you know, and since it's horror and some people, a lot of people complained in 48, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to work on effects or certain things they wanted to do in the 48 hour film festival. And so I, I thought, well, let's keep this three day thing going with this, the 666 model. And that, that was one of the few things I, I liked about the 666 festival was the three days, just having an extra day in case you do have people in your team who don't work on Monday, who, you know, maybe can, you know, you know, fine tune some editing or uh, finish recording a song they really want in there, or whatever it is, you know, or uh, create those, uh, you know, severed heads that they wanted to have in that final shock sequence. You know, some teams, it seems like this year at least, with the people who had been doing it for a number of years, got really, really efficient and they were done by Sunday night. A lot of them, I, I see people on Facebook going, oh, we're wrapped. And it was like, wow. Not just with that, but with editing too. That was kind of like a mind-blowing thing. You're like, wow, you have all this time, you're done? <laughs> really? Use all that time, you know. But, you know, if you if you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing. You just get it done. And then you can relax and sleep in, I guess. Well, and those may have been the people also that really didn't have that extra day. So they were like, well, we've got the weekend to do it. Let's get it done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Supreme Focus. There was a lot of it this year, I, I discovered. I was even hearing stuff like before it even came out from people who weren't even involved saying, well, I just saw a screenshot from so-and-so's movie. I'm like, where did you see that? Because I knew they weren't connected directly with anyone, and I knew they were taking care of their child or whatever. And it turned out they had seen these things at Widening Kitty because his wife works there. So I was like, okay, so someone's team has an effects person from Widening Kennedy. Great. So. Okay, so this is going to go pretty swimmingly, I guess. And then, sure enough, yeah, they were one of the first teams to be finished and also one of the first... I think they were one of the first teams to show up the night of the uh, draw and then the first teams to be there when I arrived for the drop-off. They had their stuff dialed, and I I was kind of shocked. But it was was great, you know, just to see that uh, commitment and that uh, level of organization from um, people who, like I say, just mere seven years ago were drunken wrecks when I met (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah a lot of them have uh, as the years have gone and as the horror films have gotten scarier and more sophisticated you know their lives have uh, tightened up a little bit too so not taking any credit for it just it's just nice that it happened in tandem yeah that Uh, it's nice when things like that work out and then it sounds like you guys have really brought the uh um, Guignol Fest up a lot, you know, just yeah. from, from what it sounds like it was whenever I, you came into it, it sounds like it's a, 
um, growing thing. So hopefully each year it's going to get a little bit bigger, you know? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I figured out a way to fix next year <clears throat> in terms of the space and uh, housing or, you know, being able to seat more people without leaving the um, Clinton. But there is going to be a time where we, you know, we might consider going to Hollywood. Right now, Hollywood charges a lot of money for a short period of time. And uh, even though I knew that this year was going to be big, I just didn't have the money to front them. And uh, with Clinton Street, since this is the third year we've been with them, and they really look forward to this uh, themselves, they consider it one of their funnest events of the year, uh, they begged us to come back, and they, they kept the, uh, the rate, apparently has gone up for a lot of other events, screenings there, but they've kept us in uh, 19, or sorry, <laughs> in 2013 rates. So that's why we stuck with them. Is, uh, they're very kind, and they don't want to see it go away. And that's got to be uh, difficult for them on that part, but, you know, they also get a lot of people coming in for that by the yeah. same token, you know. So it's like, all right, well, it's good that they're wanting to keep you there, though. Definitely, yeah. This year was a lot tighter, too, in terms of uh, the door. Um, last year, we didn't expect the numbers because it had never happened like that before. And we had a line going out the door that went into the street. Unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of people out there directing human traffic so they wouldn't get injured. But uh, no one got injured. Uh, it was just definitely a panic moment where are we going to get these people in or what's going to happen? And then when when it became clear we were already over capacity, we had to draw up the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, thing between the castle and across the moat? Drawbridge! The drawbridge. Drawbridge. <laughs> <laughs> God, uh, and we had to, had to bring that up and just, you know, I, it's not the first time I've done a horror show where I've had to turn away a mob of people. I've done that before with live shows. And uh, it's 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 a weird mixed feeling of some of the, it's like the worst feeling you have ever had and the best feeling. <laughs> you know, it, it's working so well that I have to tell these people to leave. But at the same time, it's like, you know, come back. Mm -hmm. We have another show tomorrow night. And um, we did have the uh, Clinton Street on Monday night to show it to people who couldn't see it, who were in involved in the teams or had to work on Sunday or whatever it was. And unfortunately, only 12 people showed up. So it was a night and day situation. And this is the first year I tried that out. So Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to suggest is doing it at second night. But I don't know on that. If you have yeah, that, that few people, thing, it's not going to be cost effective. Not just for for us, but also for the audience. Uh but I don't know, like because uh, Forty Eight Hour Film Festival, they that's their model. They play all the movies. Uh, they even have audience participation vote. You know, where they have cards they fill out, which I don't do because you know we can't do that in one night. We don't have the manpower to to you know whatever. Um, but then they'll have the thing again the next week, and then then they announce the winners. And they seem to do pretty well at Hollywood in terms of packing the house. Um, but then again, they have a lot of teams, and they can afford to do it. They've been doing it. Plus, it's an international machine. It's in more than 140 countries in the world. Right. I actually know this guy. And um, <laughs> since meeting him, by the way, Seattle has started a 48-hour branch of the horror film festival of their own. Kirk uh, Nordstrom, who's um, kind of uh, partnered up with the 48-hour film festival. He's a Seattle connection of that. He's the guy who runs it there. And I really like that guy, uh, but he he did come up to me, I think, the second year I did Guignol Fest, and he was like, yeah, I really like this uh, this horror film uh, festival contest you have going. It's a really good idea. Yeah. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I knew, I knew it was going to happen. It was just it was bound to happen. And they have the machine to do it. So two years later, they started their own. Maybe it was three years later, but uh, I think they're, they're, they just uh, they did it right after Guignol Fest, in fact, in Seattle. I don't feel like you know. I looked at I've looked at their rules and I've looked at their uh, and you know and I've also borrowed rules from Forty Eight. And it really we no one's stepping on anyone's toes, and it, there's a lot of mutual respect, you know, at least between Seattle and Portland film filmmakers. He's even gone on record as saying, uh, you know, I, I really think Seattle has a, a good thing going with the film community, and there are a lot of really talented and intelligent filmmakers in Seattle. But, and this is from his mouth, but Portland is weirder, and I envy that. <laughs> <laughs> I was cool. like, well, great, I'll tell them all. <laughs> So we have that down, I guess, uh, the weird part. But yeah, I'm just trying to slowly, you know, plant the, you know, the, the seeds of uh, making this sort of entertainment because it's one of my three favorite types of entertainment. And, you know, the other two being comedy and the other being erotic. <laughs> All three of them involve tension release, you know, the setup punchline, um, suspense and terror and, you know, erotic. Well, you know what that is. But, um, <laughs> Uh, it's all, you know, hot shower, cold shower, Chinese medicine, basically. That kind of entertainment to me is the entertainment that's the healthiest. You know, it keeps uh, the laughter keeps you healthy because it massages your guts. <laughs> and I think scary things keep you healthy because it, it you know, the adrenaline rush is, is it's a safe thing and it's uh, something that, you know, wakes your brain up and, and it keeps you thinking. You know, we do live in a dangerous world and I think that horror films in a way are those sort of modern fairy tales that keep you thinking about like you know the warnings that are out there what to avoid or what to um think about in case of this situation you know worst case scenario what would you do um it's a safe way of keeping the the brain limber in a in a very uh terrifying time and uh we do live in one i have definitely uh seen some hard times myself even in in safe little portland oregon i've been uh on the cusp of uh, homelessness many times and been threatened with my life many times in this town. So in a sense, you know, that, that sort of thing does, um, at least to the brain of a creative, it just, you get through it or you, or you don't, <laughs> you know, you, you gird up and you face the fear and you walk away alive and hopefully smarter and for the, for the journey. But definitely, you know, like it definitely teaches you like, well, you know, you just, there's no such thing as, total safety or total security that's just life no one gets out of here alive so i think horror is a is a nice uh nice way and, a, and a, the perfect way to sort of entertain those forbidden thoughts you know when i would think about things like you know or draw things as a kid being into horror horror uh stories and movies my grandparents were actually my grandmother and my, my mother actually behind my back were actually considering getting me therapy because i was drawing a bunch of skulls <laughs> And uh, for me, it was just funny and just sort of really drawing exercise. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci draws skulls. I'm going to draw skulls, whatever. And, well, you're, uh, you're not the first guest we've had on that's actually said the same thing. So, oh, know. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a thing. You know, this is all, God, I'm just, you know, in a sense, I feel fortunate that it was born before the Columbine thing happened because I'm sure that I would have been thrown into some kind of horrible uh, situation, you know, had I, had I been writing horror stories, you know, not in the mid eighties, but writing them in, you know, say the two thousands or something like that, who knows, (laughs) 
you know, I might not even be entertaining these ideas because uh, they might have already, you know, beat it into my head that it's just forbidden and somehow, you know, um, I don't know, what's the thinking that the Nazis used when they try to call something uh, repulsive or whatever and censor it? I forgot what the word. Uh, blown it. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I even had a, a best friend and one of these guys who used to draw horror horror-style drawings with me in, in the 80s uh, named Chaba Fenyo, and his parents escaped uh, Hungary when the Russians rolled into Budapest back in 56. And so she would tell me, you know, Dylan, if, uh, if I was drawing these things that you draw back in Hungary in the 50s, I would be taken to an insane asylum. <laughs> and it just gave me the chills, but she didn't... Uh, she thought it was healthy what we were doing. She thought it was actually quite entertaining. This is why she lived in America and not, uh, you know, Budapest in the 50s. And just sort of using her as a segue, she's also partially the inspiration for the movie we're going to try to make next year that we're working on. And uh, it has a Dracula theme to it. And she used to tell me that uh, back in Hungary, they didn't have a boogeyman. They had Dracula. And he was their boogeyman. So uh, she said, yeah, when... Uh, you know, the adults would want to get the kids to sleep. They basically say, you gotta, better go to sleep or Dracula's going to knock on our door and we're going to let him in. <laughs> and he's going to do the job for us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. But not messing around. Even though Vlad, you know, like Dracula and Vlad are two different things in, hung- in uh, Romania. It's the West that kind of is sort of, you know, put them together into sort of a, a single entity. Yeah, we're actually wow. going to travel to Transylvania and uh, make a modern Dracula film that's partially uh, set in Portland and partially set in Transylvania. Yeah, yeah. This is a, I haven't dropped this uh, very specifically yet. Well, no, I guess I did in, in code on Facebook. But, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, we're definitely working on that. I'm doing my research, and I'm learning a little bit about Romania and cultural norms and things like this. And apparently one of the things you're not supposed to do is bring up Dracula in Romania. Oh. <laughs> hmm. I was trying to think about uh, in terms of going to Romania and encountering um, anger because we're definitely going to ask a few questions about Dracula or at least Vlad maybe to stay out of trouble. But uh, but you know, little uh, one side of me wants to almost bore at the thing and just drop Dracula a few times and see if we can't tw- push a few buttons and get some interesting footage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little uh, Dracula Blair, which slightly more aggressive and in another country. Yeah, you got to be careful with that, you know, because you want to be able to come back. So exactly, yeah. <laughs> it Which, seems like a relatively safe place, but yeah, I'm, I'm not there to make any enemies for sure. Right? That's not my style. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's something we're definitely looking forward to, and I've written at least one page, and I've got the uh, five six of the outline. The the, the last. 35 pages are really stumping me. There's a couple turning points that I just, it's its a, it almost a thing where it's like, God, no one's really done this before, so how do I do this, <laughs> you know? And, uh, I mean, we have a lot of things lined up so where it can go a lot of different directions, but I'm trying to mind, find the most interesting one and also have it be as little cheese as possible. <laughs> it's going to be hard to do on a low budget, but I think I've got it figured out. I think i, I got the formula at least uh, drawn up somewhat. But yeah, that last stretch is going to be tough. So right now is a very interesting point in uh, the outline of that story. But that's that all all the stuff that I'm having problems with is all the stuff that happens in Portland. In fact, the stuff in Transylvania I've already got pretty much figured out. 
what's your yeah. process on uh, when you're starting to write or come up with an idea for it? Uh, where do you go? How um, do you do it? Well, it's it sometimes it works. I, I, it's it's works in different ways. I, I I don't know. Over the years, I've read enough in in you know at least take enough notes and done enough things between theater and cartooning and you know whatever um, public speaking and even working in restaurants when you're kind of in a certain zone, say, you know, like doing menial tasks of washing dishes in the kitchen of a restaurant, a premise will pop up and it's hard. It's, it's almost like the way David Lynch uh, describes how ideas happen. You know, it's just an idea appears and you follow it. And in, suddenly I'm finding myself doing his hand motions as I speak. <laughs> uh, in, but you know, the ideas will, those will attract other ideas and they connect almost like uh, bubbles and uh, they stick to each other and then they just sort of go, you go from there and just sort of follow the thread. And uh, in the, in the case of this story, I'm not sure what the exact spark was. Oh, I, I do. I, 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 the spark actually had nothing to do with him in particular. I was thinking about um, local creatives in Portland in particular and how a lot of, not a lot, but there's a there's a certain group of people in Portland who steal ideas from each other shamelessly, and uh, I you know and I in particular have had a lot of ideas stolen over the years. Everybody has. Uh, sometimes they're parallel thinking, but sometimes it's a straight up ripoff, and you can you know you know when when it happens. And so I was frustrated about that and talking about that idea of you know how how would how would a uh, say a film company who gets an idea completely taken from them how do they deal with that without being angry you know without being jerks about it without being sore losers or whatever you know they got better equipment than us that's this is stupid we should just quit how do you come back and blow everyone's you know skulls apart and so it just came to me immediately how how a, a group might do that and i'm not saying this film company is a good film company i'm not saying they're even necessarily smart just definitely really confident and ambitious so they get this idea in their heads to do this this movie in spite of the other people kind of stealing their idea they decide to roll with it but do a one-up and they get themselves in a lot of trouble and it basically puts the entire city of portland at jeopardy so that's that's pretty much the premise without uh giving away too much but it's basically about how um, uh, a, a big ego and an, an ambition can uh, put an entire population in danger. And in this case, I just thought it was funny because it's about a, a movie. It's no big deal, right? Uh, to me, you know, when people... I love movies. I take them seriously, but I don't take them too seriously because there's more important things in the world. There's, you know, there's things that are actually putting our lives in jeopardy. So I just thought it would be funny or at least funny in a scary way, if someone's ambitious art project actually did put a lot of people in harm's way. So it becomes a real horror film in a sense. And, you know, you go from this sort of campy aspect to, dear God, what have I done? This apocalyptic level in, in you know, 90 minutes or whatever it takes. That, to me, is something that I'd want to see, a movie I'd want to see. So that's that's kind of where the idea came from. And really it just came from like, I'd even talk outside uh, or out loud sometimes uh, when I'm uh, sometimes I'm by myself and I'll just write notes. And then other times I'll read the notes out loud to my girlfriend, Julia, 
who's also the uh, producer of uh, Guignol Fest, and uh, asked her, like, look, this could go five different directions. Which one's the most interesting? And then I'll, I'll already have an idea and ask to see if hers jives with mine, and it almost always does. So then to me, it's like, okay, then that's the one we take, and we go down that path. And then, you know, it's in a sense, you're just creating your own, you're writing your own choose your own adventure. You have all the possibilities, all the quantum, you know, directions it could go. But you just pick the most entertaining one, the one that works, you know, like it, same thing with writing a joke. Like, what's the funniest joke? What's the funniest punchline? You know, you could say three things here, but what's the funny one? And then you go from there. So that's, I'm not sure if that's uh, clear, <laughs> the process, but uh, it, oh, it also involves a little bit of drinking. <laughs> just a little just to get that that kind of golden moment in my mind you know where it's like whoo okay all these subconscious thoughts are just right there in front of me in 3d it's like staring at those you know blurry posters and all of a sudden they just pop out it's like bam they were there all along you know just waiting to be discovered yeah i don't, I don't know how else to to describe it um sometimes it's just uh you know, or just being at a friend's house, not even thinking about this sort of thing and hanging out and listening to some, you know, friend of yours band recording. And then a lyric pops up and you're like, whoa, there's another story. Oh, my God. You know, they just they just sort of tumble out all, all over the place if you're tuned into looking for them. So hopefully next year I can, you know, end my curse of not making things for quite a while and actually get back into the game. I've been a curator for quite a while and I'd like to... uh Kind of show people what I've got. <laughs> I want to show. I want to show all the people who joined uh, Guignol Fest that the you know, I'm one of you. Mm. I'm not just some guy who stands up there on a microphone and you know, shows movies. I make them too. When you're uh, actually out making films instead of just curating, what's your favorite role? What is the thing that you love doing the most out of it? In the past, I've, I mean, when I was younger, I'd always love to play the bad guy. These days, I, 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 it's, it's almost like anything I can get. <laughs> you know, like if, if it's not me directing, like, for example, the last movie I directed uh, wasn't a horror film at all. It was a drama because that's what we pulled out of the hat at 48. And um, I was technically the director because I formed the team and paid the money and entered, you know, everyone. Uh, but I had a friend who uh, was a cameraman and just he just knows a lot more about film than I do because he worked at a TV station for more than a decade. And so he said, can you please give me co-director status so I can help you because you've cast yourself in the lead. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, thank you. And he, and he made it look like a million bucks. But in terms of and that role was uh, the owner of a bar, actually. Uh, he, you know, he was suicidal. I liked playing that role. But <laughs> the feedback was, was I, I show it to my friends and they get super depressed at the end of it. And so, and, and like, that wasn't where I really wanted people to think, because for me, it was just like, yeah, cool movie. And no, it was like, Jesus, God, Dylan, I just, I want to crawl under a rock right now. <laughs> it's not the reaction I really want. I mean, I want people to go, ooh, you know? I mean, sure, you know, I don't want, I don't think every horror film should have a happy ending either, and I don't want mine to be any different. But I definitely don't want people to say, God, I feel like killing myself after seeing that I want people to, it, it's more of a Sam Raimi thing. I want to uplift, you know, in, in the end. Yeah, you know, take, take them to hell, but then, you know, bring them back up a little bit. You know, <laughs> give, them, give them a glimmer of hope. Otherwise, you know, what's the point, you know, of just 
sitting in a room and being depressed. No, there's, you know, unless you're learning something about the Holocaust or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some topics that tend to keep you down in a lower level rather than bringing you back up. But yeah, there's usually a reason for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, for example, like, you know, like that, uh, I just brought up Sam Raimi, that uh, Send Me to Hell. Drag Me to Hell. Drag Me to Hell, thank you. Yeah. You know, at the very end here, you see this woman you've been following around the whole time just get pulled into hell on some railroad tracks, and it's horrifying. But then you got to realize she's guilty. So this, <laughs> in a really dark way, it was an uplifting ending. It was justice was served, you know. This poor little gypsy lady who couldn't handle her own finances, you know, got her house taken away or whatever it was, got her revenge. Good. That's EC. That's the rule of EC Comics, man. Justice. As dark as it is. <laughs> Part of the fun was that, was seeing... Seeing the guy who did people wrong get it in the end. And usually in a really weird visual way, you know, nightmarish, abject, horrifying way, which is part of the allure of horror is the abject and this, those images. Horror films, to me, uh, have some of the best imagery, some of those beautiful imagery that I've you know, seen in movies. Sci-fi is catching up. They have better budget now. Well, you also have with sci-fi, usually it's a more grandiose, uh, bigger uh, kind of thing, whereas with horror, it's usually more one-on-one and personal. Right. And when I say beauty, I'm, I'm meaning uh, dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we we know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I like, my mom is a florist. I like pretty, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just, something about horror films, I can't put my finger on it, but it's something about it, this always been like a warm blanket maybe because when the first horror films i was watching i was i had a blanket that i was using to hide under <laughs> that very well could be yeah <laughs> so this is probably a hard question to answer but um like what are some of your ultimate favorite horror films uh, that is a hard one and it's it has come up multiple times recently and almost every time i just sit there like an idiot staring <laughs> at the wall going god what is it? And it, my default for years is Exorcist, but I think it's just too easy. These days, I'm I'm kind of on the fence between uh, The Thing and um, Texas Chainsaw. You know, and Thing's kind of you know sci-fi horror, but it's horror. It's you know it's it's the hook. In, in you know up in the you know polar ices, it's the same you know kind of urban legend in a different places. Like the alien is kind of like the hook in space. But it's uh, Texas Chainsaw. To me, part of what made that amazing was, and a lot, and not a lot of horror fans uh, agree with me, especially these days. But they, you barely see any blood in it. There's hardly any blood, and I find it amazing because by the end of it, you feel like you saw a lot of blood. Yeah, and you, you don't see it. Like uh, one of the reasons I think The Shining is not scary is because that elevator sequence is like, what was that? And I understand it was a hallucination that you know, Danny was picking up cues about. Uh, the danger he was in, but, uh, but, you know, I just, there's some directors, you know, and, and stories that call for it. Like, I think that Dead Alive is amazing, and that, you know, the uh, lawnmower sequence is fantastic in that movie, the whole thing, but it's a certain style of horror film, and if you're going for a horror film that wants, you know, that where you really want to be terrified, I think Texas Chainsaw is right up there, and there's hardly a drop of blood in it, and that was one of the secrets of the original Grand Guignol Theater in Paris was, they would sell a show 
and make you think there was going to be gallons of blood. And there might be just a trickle down someone's arm, and you'd still leave disturbed and, you know, having to walk down this alley to try to, you know, get to the, the metro or whatever. But uh, Texas Chainsaw, I think is, I would say, I guess, you know, if I had to pick between the two, thing, Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw, probably my favorite. I got to just, uh, just recently at the uh, Living Dead Horror Convention, I got to hang out with three of those guys. Uh, Pam, who gets hooked at the beginning, and the guy who played Grandpa, and um, the hitchhiker who cuts his, his hand in the bus. They're all hanging out next to each other. We talked to them one by one. Really, really nice people, and it doesn't surprise me at all. Seems like whenever I go to horror conventions, uh, the first one I went to was in 1987. Um, I, one of the first things I noticed was, God, these are some of the nicest and most normal people I've ever met. Or at least maybe it was just I found my own, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I listened to the Movie Crypt podcast, and they say the same thing. Most of the people involved in horror movies and the horror horror movie fans are more uh, just the nicest people. You know, yeah. they're not they're not what you're expecting wherever you they go. It's a horror movie fan, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I. I remember thinking that. And this is uh, 87, like I say, so this is before cosplay uh, was a thing. And I think there was only like two people even dressed up. And one guy was dressed as Beetlejuice, and I don't know who the other one was. Wait, do I have that correct? Maybe it was 88, because Beetlejuice came out in 88. Is that... I might be time-tripping. Anyway, but it, but yeah, regardless, everybody was very, uh, you know, street clothes, normal stuff. Not You know, there was... I don't even think there was any goth people there, to be honest. <laughs> so I was hanging out with Bill Mosley, and he was dressed like everyone else, normal, you know? <laughs> just regular guys, and so it was just crazy. I'm, like, you know, hobnobbing with Clive Barker, and I, I, he wasn't even scheduled. It was sort of a last-minute thing, so he was totally ecstatic to, to speak because he was, you know, his fame was peaking. Just to, just to, you know, the, the feeling of just being with these people and watching their movies, and they're so scary, and then you see them, and they're just teddy bears, you know. I mean, George Romero is literally a giant teddy bear. <laughs> they're a really tall guy, but, you know, with <laughs> zero intimidation. Um, just a, just kind people, you know. Like, uh, we, we were just hanging out with um, Ari Lehman, who's the first Jason in the Friday 13th. And uh, he's he's only, well, he's just five years older than me because he was a kid when they made that film, and I was like eleven when it came out. And uh, I think he was in high school. But uh, super nice guy. He's got a band in Chicago, and he told us he said, "I really love Portland. This is a nice town. You guys are really cool. We should hang out, and uh, maybe I can bring my band and maybe play at your Guignol Fest." Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> we might have the original Jason at next year's Guignol Fest. Right now. Wow. <laughs> Oh, wow, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a super nice guy. Looks like he walked out of some uh, Scorpions cover band. <laughs> he's got a big fluffy hair and a big old, big old mustache. Sells his own hot sauce now. He's great. Great guy, Ari Lehman. <laughs> Look him up on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, with the Living Dead Con, I didn't even hear about it until a couple days before it started, you know, before it happened. So hopefully really? it'll go next year. Yeah, I don't know. And I saw that, were you part of the Twin Peaks yes. then? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I got <laughs> I wasn't going to go either. And uh, they roped me into it. Um, 
And uh, that was awesome because, well, there were some strange circumstances. Um, first of all, all the characters, the, the, the ladies who produce um, Black Lodge Burlesque, they play Laura Palmer, um, Audrey Horn, and the Log Lady. Well, the actors who play those characters, of course, on television were all supposed to be at the Living Dead Con. And then one by one, Log Lady died. Uh, Laura Palmer dropped out. And then the very last second it was supposed to be, they got Audrey Horn, or, or rather, you know, uh, Sherilyn Fenn, mm-hmm. to come in. And then at the last minute, she got a different job, and she had to bow out. So the poor girls are all dressed up to look like them. And the only people from Twin Peaks there are, are Bobby and James. <laughs> but I, it was perfect. I was like, no, this is destiny. You guys are dressed up as their replacements, and you get to hang out with them. So this is totally meant to be. And... um yeah, that was cool. So I they, they asked me to help because on the first day of the festival, they all had to work. So it all worked out for me because I got a you know just a, a, a VIP pass and a you know overall pass just to go and uh, watch their their booth for a day, and then get to play for the rest of the weekend with uh, you know Julia and myself just to run around get autographs. But uh, that that had been built, brewing for a while. I'm surprised you didn't run across anything because she did put a lot of ads out, but. Um, but yeah, first year is always like that. It's just like Guignol Fest. I and mean, we only had three teams that first year because I didn't know a lot of the teammates or the members who were in the previous the year's team because that guy had gotten fired and run out of town. So you had to, I had to kind of recreate everything from scratch. I had to create my own network. And I knew it was going to take a while. I was like, we're just going to walk down this hill and it's going to take years. But I have nothing but time right now. I have nothing to lose. So... Um, they broke even that that convention, so um, they will be coming back, but I don't think they're going to be at the same spot. Um, the convention center, apparently, they had a few uh, bad run-ins with some people there. Uh-oh. Apparently, there was a lot of, uh, there was an organization of Christian ladies who were there, apparently, and were just flipped out by some of the costumes. So they launched a bunch of complaints, and um, that was part of it. Just a lot of rude people, not realizing it takes all kinds. Whatever. So, so they knew they were at a uh, horror convention, right? No, they were they were at a different uh, convention themselves in the same building. Oh, so okay. Walk outside of the room, you're interacting with people in the hall, and some people were just like, "What is going on in this building?" <laughs> I mean, it looked like some kind of satanic rite, I guess, to them. But you know, what I was walking around. Me and Uncle Erie were just walking around in our suits, and no one seemed to bat too much of an eyelash at us. <laughs> But then okay. again, you know, we weren't scantily clad and covered red toe to toe. Let's see. So, out of the movies that you've uh, done, do you have any kind of cool onset stories? Uh, movies that I've worked on personally, or like major motion pictures? Uh, ones that you've worked on. Okay, because I do have a couple of major motion picture stories. <laughs> uh, one of them is in the cast of uh, the set of Twilight. Oh. I was in believe it or not you were in oh. that yes and i, I got cut oh. <laughs> no. no it was funny because i got paid you know it was an extra oh, yeah. but it was the establishing shot of carver cafe in the first twilight i'm sitting next to the front door reading a newspaper and they took this shot from three different angles and the only angle there was a bush between me and the camera and i thought well that's the most interesting angle so that's probably the one they're going to use and that's exactly what they did, so you can't see me. Uh-huh. But I am hiding behind a bush in twilight 
The first time you see Carver Cafe. So if you watch that movie, know that I'm behind that bush. I'm, I'm dressed as a lumberjack, and I'm reading the living section of the Oregonian in a vampire film. Nice. That was my joke, but <laughs> I really was, and, and unfortunately, you couldn't see it. Oh. But uh, as far as uh, making movies myself, uh, stories on on the set. I'm trying to think of anything truly uh, noteworthy. Um, let's see. Gosh, it, I have more interesting stories on on stage horror plays. That works. That's fine. <laughs> I'll do that. That's that's yeah, because the the movie ones aren't that interesting. The now, I've done a lot of horror on stage, uh, Grand Guignol style stuff, ever since nineteen ninety five or ninety six, and I did a couple in, or actually, I worked at producing three in Portland with two different theater companies that uh, don't exist anymore. But uh, one time in Chico, California, at the Blue Room Theater, which is still open, we founded it back in the early nineties. Uh, we were doing a Grand Guignol, and the structure of Grand Guignol is that there's a sex farce in the beginning, one act, and there's a horror uh, play, and there's another sex farce, and then there's a horror play. So there's about four one acts, and you end with a scary one. And in this particular one, there was a a bunch of people died uh, very violently on stage, and it was uh, set on a ship, and. What happened was one of the characters, uh, his name is Brian Woods, walked out on stage to take a bow, and he was playing a uh, slave who had been tied to the mast, I believe, or something like that. Our only black actor at our theater. In other words, when he got injured, it screwed up everything. <laughs> we didn't, couldn't find anybody else to replace him. He was the only guy we had who could do that. And he went out for a bow, bare feet, slipped on fake blood, Got himself a concussion. Ooh. This is one of many, many horrible, horribly timed bad luck things that had happened to him in a short period of time. But this is one of them. And the problem with that was you got. Uh, well, we had to call the paramedics. Of course, there was no no way around it. We need the paramedics. He's not going to get up. We don't want him to move. The paramedics show up, and we you know it's been a few minutes, and our mind is completely off the play. Even though we haven't even gotten out of our costumes, we're just kind of. Uh, keeping watch over Brian to make sure he's okay. In comes these paramedics. They walk around the corner, and I forgot what the stage looked like, but basically these guys turn white as a sheet, and their eyes turn into saucers, and I look at what they're looking at, and I realize that it looks like someone has exploded on stage. There's blood everywhere. And I just completely forgot about that. And so we all just sort of like, Realize, look at the look in their face, look at Brian, we look at the blood everywhere, we're like, no, 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 it's on his head, the stage, it's all fake, it's all fake. And these guys almost passed out in front of us, so I thought we were going to have to call more parapanics. <laughs> that was one, that was a huge moment, that was a moment where we realized that whatever we just did was uh, effective, hmm. in terms of fear. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, yeah. I figured if two paramedics almost passed out to that, then uh, we did our job. <laughs> Richie Stratton, he's also a, a writer for the Guignol Fest. He's a friend of mine from way back, going back about four years, actually. Not that far. He wrote a movie that I directed uh, called Dive for the 48-hour film festival. You can find it on Vimeo, the suicidal bartender story. And at one point, I catch him. He's supposed to be playing my cook, and I catch him doing cocaine in, my, in the, the bathroom. And so I'm firing him, basically. I basically push him outside the door, and we're doing multiple takes of this, so I keep pushing him outside this bathroom door, 
And the guy who owns the bar has a bartender sort of stay there overnight to make sure we don't steal anything or the place is, you know, okay. He doesn't know what's going on, but I'm yelling, and I guess Richie's yelling or something like that. And Richie's a stand-up comedian, so he's also a seasoned stage performer. This bartender comes tearing around the corner ready to punch us out. And we're like, what's going on? And he just goes, are you fighting? And he still had that look in his eye like he's about to throw down. We're like, no, no, it's a scene. It's a scene. We've been filming a little uh, around the corner, so he hadn't heard all the other takes we've been doing. So suddenly this, you know, hits his ears, and he's like, Jesus. So apparently we convinced him that we were actually, you know, about to uh, get in a big fight in the hallway. So I felt uh, like we got a little bit of Martin Scorsese credit that moment, you know, <laughs> got to that level. <laughs> People are worried a little bit, I guess, but we're like, no, 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 perfectly fine. We're just angry. Uh, artists or something <laughs> I can't think of anything mind-blowing there mostly I I think the, the really weird stories I have come from live theater I think that's film you get things done so much so quickly that you, honestly like to me I'm surprised when film groups have problems because it seems like they can be solved so much faster than in theater you have more time with theater to iron out things but that's there's so much more time for things to go wrong as well and uh, when things go wrong in theater they go wrong spectacularly <laughs> It's live. There's no second take. So uh, I, I have some doozies there, but I can't. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you guys have the time for a, a number of them. But and sometimes it doesn't even happen. Like on stage, it'll happen. You know, sort of behind the scenes. And, and for example, uh, I directed an all-woman version of Reservoir Dogs a number <laughs> of years, called Reservoir Dolls, and it starred a number of uh, people, some of which are still friends of mine. Halfway through the production, my uh, producer got fired from uh, the place we were doing the play at. And not only that, but he got arrested. And all the uh, guns that we were using as props were confiscated by the police. Oh. So it, all of a sudden, behind the scenes, the rehearsals began to take on a quality that felt a lot like the film itself. We were suddenly running around town, not knowing what's going on. We end up at the Tonic Lounge, and people are literally they're storming through the door going, what is going on? <laughs> Just waiting for everybody. Have you seen so-and-so? No? Okay, we're waiting for her. It's like waiting on Miss Blue or whatever. <laughs> and then once everybody showed up, it was basically just bottom line, like, I don't know what happened, but um, our producer's in jail, <laughs> and um, all the guns are gone, and I was going to try to get you guys to work with the guns today so we wouldn't be awkward on stage when we open in a month. Basically just gave them the option to sort of drop out at that moment. I, I was worried that they'd all have a uh, lack of faith, but for some reason, once the... Uh, stakes got higher and everything got a lot harder to make sure that the show went forward everyone was on board even more you know <laughs> it suddenly became part of the deal it was like oh yeah this is the hardest play we've ever done and the coolest you know all female reservoir dolls this is great so uh you know when the show went up uh we managed to fix almost everything but then a couple of the actors just well, I'd already agreed that one actor would play a cop who got tortured on the first night, and then this other actor would play it for the second, or the, the, the next three nights. Well, this guy tried to convince me, because he didn't convince his friends to go the first night to see him. He tried to convince me to give him the last night as well. The other guy didn't want to give up his uh, post, because he was also my stage manager and a loyal friend. So they both put me in an awkward position, and I put my foot down and said, we're going to just stick with the original plan. You're doing... What you normally do, you're coming in at the end and you're not the guy getting tortured on Sunday. So he basically called up all ten of his friends and told them to go home and not to show up to the show. 
which is dumb because he was in a lot of the video that we used for the play. So he he did a lot of work for it and he was heavily featured. He had some serious FaceTime in the thing. And that wasn't enough, so he turned into a big fat baby and ran off to uh, Doug Fur and got wasted and came back. And so I had to literally pull like five favors to make sure my cast didn't fall apart that night. Basically, uh, one by one, I kind of felt like I got my stride once and for all as a director at that moment because I finally realized there's a lot of people internally who are actually sabotaging this intentionally. And so I instantly, just all the people I knew who were my, I knew were solid, loyal friends of mine and, you know, basically committed to making the show work. I called on all of them and said, these are, these things are happening. I'm in the booth. I can't deal with this. Can you guys fix it? They did. It was one of the, I mean, I've, I've been with a lot of teams that stuck together. Uh, but that was one of those moments where it was almost like everything just locked in. Like I finally knew that, you know, this was in a sense, a moment that I've been waiting for my whole life where everybody that I needed to listen to me, listened to me at that moment. And the show was phenomenal. Luckily we got it on video too. So one of these days I'll be releasing a lot of these shows I've been doing the last four years on uh, public access. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to, we're going to do a big old block of these things and it'll be reservoir dolls, headless body and headless bar, bikini creature beach feature, and last year's show, Terror at Angel's Horn. We'll be playing them all on uh, local public access very soon. Nice. Yeah. So that'll be fun. This year, the play is still kind of forming. I don't really know what I'm going to do. I know I'm going to be helping another friend, though, direct uh, or produce Plan uh, Plan 10 from Outer Space, a sequel to Plan 9. Hmm. That's uh, John Marble. He wrote Terror at Angel's Horn, and he also played the Headless Body in Topless Bar. I shot him in the first 10 minutes of the play and forced him to sit on his back and think about next year's show for the rest of the run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. I could I'd probably sit here uh, and tell you all kinds of weird stories that I've forgotten about. <laughs> we definitely have some stuff uh, crystallizing things in the works. So, And you've done so much. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, it's that or go insane, I suppose. Yeah. I feel like that character from Naked Lunch where it's like, if I don't keep cranking something out, you know, I'm not going to get that, that alien goo that gives me endorphins or whatever it is. <laughs> I forgot the, the word for it. The mugwumps? Yeah. Apparently, whenever he'd type out a page on the typewriter, they would secrete some kind of stuff from their pores that would give him joy or something in the want to press on and make more art. <laughs> I guess, uh, to me, um, titles and awards are nice, but I think the uh, just making the art itself is award enough for me, which is weird since I, I run a contest. <laughs> it's an aspect of human nature I don't quite understand, but the competition seems to bring a lot of thrill to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely fun and interesting to be a part of it. Both of us have just recently got started in film, so it's uh, fun to actually be able to see our stuff up on a uh, big screen when at the end of the weekend it's like, oh, here's our thing. So yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things I think that we can't uh, we can never go back to places like Red Flag where I do it in my little tiny screen. Once we broke that mold, and that was partially thanks to Mandy Stockholm who helped me co-produce it three years ago. 
she was the one who said, you need to take this to Clinton Street. I think you've grown out of that bar. Yeah. Uh, I agreed with her. And yeah, it's it, there's nothing like it. I, mean, I even have a friend who makes these, the intros for the Guignol Fest once a year because he doesn't really care about the contest aspect of it. He just said, I just want to make like an emblem for you that you can show every year for continuity's sake. And, and that way I can see my work on a big screen. So he just tinkers around his... Uh, his house and plays with the uh, green screens and does some 3D animation and comes out with stuff every year. It's kind of artsy horror title intros and a lot of fun. And But that's the thing for him. He's just like, for me, the reward is just seeing that on a big screen, period. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's been working out. <laughs> yeah. Glad people keep coming back, too. That's the other thing. And every year, I'm just, that darkest part of me is just like, no one's going to show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it matters what you do. If you're an artist, it doesn't matter what field of art you're in. That's always the fear that no one's going to care enough to even look at what you're doing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I do all kinds of different things, and every time I look at something, it's like, this isn't good enough. People aren't going to care. And then, of course, everyone else is looking at it saying, hey, it's great. I'm uh-huh. looking at it seeing flaw, 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 you know. Yeah. But I think well, that's part of being an artist, so Exactly. Well one of the one of the judges this year, his name is Mike Wellens. He's a director at Leica and I've known him from you know my hometown. He actually did help me do my first special effects for Greg and Yol back in like ninety six or whenever that was. And uh one of the things he told me a long time ago was um people are like sharks. Entertainment is like the water. And if they stop swimming, they'll die. So never hold back from making whatever it is you want to make, whether it's a movie or a book or a painting or a band or whatever it is. You know, he says, basically, just do it because people are going to like it no matter what. You know, not to say that, you know, you're not going to get better, too, you know. Yeah. But uh, people will see your band, even if you don't don't have much experience, because people like to be entertained by live music. I, I don't think I've ever seen a band in my life get booed to be honest, other than a band that opened for the Beastie Boys, and I think it was a setup just as a joke, just so that the Beastie Boys could come on stage and get a bigger applause. And it worked, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was all an act. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't ever discourage people's artistic expression, even if I don't agree with the style or whatever. It's like, I don't, you know, I'll, I don't agree on giving awards to everyone, too. I don't think that, you know, it's not, I don't think it should be like that, but I also, you know, the process to me is all important that you just keep doing it. You know, even Stephen King said once, you know, like, uh, if you do anything, you know, long enough, you're going to get good at it. And I kind of, I agree with that sort of um, ethos. Well, I guess one last question. Um, Mm -hmm. You're kind of answering it now already, but do you have any advice for someone who's just starting out in filmmaking? Oh, uh, well, uh, mainly just... Get a hold of the equipment. Uh, don't spend money on film school. Just do it because, uh, you know, it, you already know the language. You've been soaking in it your whole life. The language of film is all around us. It's on television. It's, you know, it's on your phone. It's in cinema. You already know, you know, these how to speak visually. Most people do. It's just going to be a little bit awkward when you pick up the pencil or, you know, the brush or your camera or whatever. Uh, you might be a little bit awkward at first, but, you know, you just have to get those first drafts out of the way before things click. I think that's the best advice is just get your hands on the equipment. And writing is more important than focus. I can't tell you how much 
or how many uh, film people in town I've run into who just fetishize their equipment and get all the, you know, the, the state of the art, best in the line, you know, vans full of stuff. And it's like, you don't need all that to make a good movie. You really don't. It's writing. Writing's the most important thing. That's more important than anything. And then, you know, of course, in my, my uh, formula is a really good cast. Mm-hmm. Cast people who get along. That's the most important thing, too. Don't cast people just because they went to film school or acting school or the, they think they're the best at it or they're, you know, they have helicopter parents who have been telling them they're great their entire life. I can see through that a mile away. I want the, you know, I would rather have second fiddle or, you know, slightly amateur to the best in town as long as they, we get along. You know, to me, it's attitude is so much of, of uh, the process of getting anything done. And, um, and then once you master those tools and you've got people who get along, who master the tools with you, then the muse can kiss you. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much where, where it leads you. Um, people have to get over themselves these days. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're all in this together, and we should all help each other out. And that's, to me, I think that everybody who work in Yellow Fest and separate teams should all hang out and, like, work on stuff together throughout the year. Yeah, and they do. Really, like, the film community in Portland is just really friendly and welcoming, and it's great just for, like, Mitch and I, who are still trying to get experience, you know, they're just letting us in and taking a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. It's true. And, there's yeah, there's a lot of, uh, almost like a, in a way, like a summer of love with film these days in Portland. People are finally, you know, breaking out of their, their narrow reality tunnels and going, oh, okay, well, what do you do again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, all right, well, you want to help me on my movie? Sure, <laughs> yes, that's what, I'm try- that's what I've been trying to say this whole time. <laughs> For years, and, you know, it feels like now people are finally starting to, you know, get their backs off the wall and just you know, work together instead of being wallflowers. Which is the whole point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> keep making movies. Make keep America strong. Make horror films. That's the motto. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Dylan. We really do appreciate it. Thank sure. you very much, uh, both of you. And um, hashtag Fest If you want to look at uh, stuff that's happened in the past, I've been. I need to uh, go back. I've, I've kind of taken a month off from uh, this sort of marathon, and I need to. Uh, Go back to the website, reannounce what everybody did, and you know, thank every single team profusely for their efforts. And I'm going to post all the movies we did for Good and the Old Fest this year on the website uh, in the next couple weeks. Wow! For Christmas, yes, just in time. <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Do you have somewhere for people to contact you if they're interested in finding out more about um, what you're doing? Guignolfest.com. It's spelled G-U-I-G-N-O-L-F-E-S-T.com. Okay, and we'll make sure to put a link to the uh, website on the show notes, so if anyone's interested in checking it out, it'll be a nice click away. Awesome. All right, well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. No problem. And, um, yeah, we'll be in touch online. I haven't listened to the last couple podcasts, but I guess you just interviewed West Ramsey? Yep. Awesome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we did uh, an interview with West, and then we did uh, Dana Shea. I don't know if you've met her or not. I don't, I don't think so. On well, Brandon Michael Scott. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I love that guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we also just did uh, Derek Willis, an interview with him last night. Uh, he's not as much into horror films, but he 
did a uh, 48 hour that we worked with him on. Oh, brilliant. Cool. What yeah. genre did you guys get? Dark comedy. Dark comedy. All right. Yeah. Nice. yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, there were certain scenes in that that were just, just make you warm and fuzzy all <laughs> over seeing someone beat to death with a bicycle seat, you know? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Very Portland. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you'll have to uh, have to check out Vimeo and uh, go watch that because it's just one of those scenes where you got blood going everywhere. She's having the time of her life doing it, and it's like, all right, well, that works, you know. What's the name again? The name of the uh, movie was Now Open. Now Open. Mm-hmm. And what was the name of the team? Shiny Objects. Got it. Shiny Objects. I'm going to check it out. It's on Vimeo. And I will say, Dylan, like the next time we have you on, we'll have to get into David Lynch a little bit, you know. (laughs) Oh, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. A lot to talk about there. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Mitch and Stephanie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dylan. Oh, man. Let's talk about films. This week for the movie review, Stephanie won't be joining us. However, my beautiful wife, Casey, will be joining us for the show so this will be fun to see what she has to say about Krampus Uh, we went to see it together about a week ago now and uh, she has some interesting opinions of it welcome Casey thanks (laughs) I feel like cereal and hackers like when he's talking out to everybody on the TV's I feel like God. I don't really feel like God, but it just, it feels weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's something you got to get used to a little bit, you know. It still seems weird that we've got a good solid 25, 30 listeners and it keeps growing a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, you know. So it's interesting to see that happening. And now with me, you'll get, like, millions, so... Uh, yeah. Obviously. (laughs) Of course. So, let's talk about Krampus. If you guys haven't seen the movie Krampus yet, uh, we're going to go into some details on it that probably is going to spoil it. Or not spoil it, but, you know, go into more detail than what you want. So, since this is out in the theater right now, if you guys haven't seen the movie, stop the podcast, go see the movie come back to the podcast because we don't want to ruin it for anyone it's a good movie Krampus is the shadow side of Santa there are many cultures that have a Krampus like character that's supposed to basically be the evil side of Santa if you're good you get a visit from Santa if you're bad you get a visit from Krampus which is not getting out quite as pleasantly. This is more based on a German folklore. Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure who, during the Christmas season, punishes children who have misbehaved. In contrast with St. Nicholas, who rewards the well-behaved with gifts. Uh, regions in Austria feature similar figures and more widely Krampus is one of a number of companions of St. Nicholas in regions of Europe. The origin of the figure is unclear. 
Some folklorists and anthropologists have postulated that a pre-Christian origin for the figure um, may be Germanic paganism. Oh, and the Krampus parade is actually a thing. Oh, it is a thing, yeah. They do it, I think, on... Well, I read trivia on there, and it said that um, the original release date was, like, November 24th, but they pushed it to December, what did we say, December 5th, which is actual Krampus Day, where I guess kids put out their shoe, and the next day they either find, like, a a treat or a gift or a... um, Or a switch. What we have is a very dysfunctional family at the beginning of the movie. It felt a lot like pretty much every Christmas movie that has come out like in the last, oh, I don't know, since the beginning of movies. You've got the typical family doesn't get along. Everyone's always arguing, bickering kind of thing. And... Even from the opening credits, you can tell that this entire town basically has given up on the actual meaning of Christmas and uh, lost their faith in Santa Claus. Everything is pretty much going downhill. You can see this from the very opening. And with Black Friday, you see people getting hurt and stuff in the stores. You see guards macing people and doing all kinds of just stupid stuff and it's going on both ends and then you get into the family aspect of it and the families are both parts of the family are just about as bad it wasn't until max finally lost his faith in christmas that that's when everything just went downhill He uh, ripped up his letter to Santa Claus and ended up throwing it out the window. Well, of course, that drew the attention of Krampus. And thus begins the story. Okay, so the movie was directed by Michael Doherty, written by Todd Casey. Uh, Adam Scott as Tom. Tony Collette as Sarah. David Kuchner as Howard. Allison Tolman as Linda. Conchata Farrell as Aunt Dorothy, MJ Anthony as Max, and uh, Stefina Levee Owen as Beth. It also had Krista Stadler as Omi, which is the grandma. I like how the director describes uh, Krampus. Uh, in the film, he says uh, Santa Claus is shadow. He's not the unstoppable monster that kicks down your door and rampages and grabs you. There's something darkly playful about him. He's having a good time doing what he does and enjoys the cat and mouse aspect of it. I think that pretty much sums up Krampus. Yeah, actually, that aspect of it really reminded me of uh, Gremlins. And I've heard a couple of different people mention that, that it has a very Gremlins feel to it. Although you don't see anything until about midway through the movie, it starts off with that more family-based Christmas story, and you know something's coming, but you don't really know quite what it's going to go to. Then once 
the events start triggering and you start seeing them, it really goes into a lot of the same points as Gremlins, where you've got a very active movie from that point on. A little bit gory, but not too bad. There is some, but it wasn't bad at all. I would say it's right on par, or a little bit less. It's probably less than Gremlins. There wasn't much in it. Yeah. And so most of it is just the build-up and the anticipation. I really liked the original build-up for the first half of the movie. I thought they did a really good job. They didn't go into... um, like CGI or anything like that too much. It was all practical effects and all pretty basic. And I remember thinking through the first half of the movie that Stephanie and I could have shot the beginning of that movie just from how they took a very basic kind of structure to build up the suspense. They didn't get into anything fancy It was all stuff that could easily be done by pretty much anyone trying to shoot a film. Whereas a lot of movies really try and go in for the high-end effects and stuff like this. So I was looking at it thinking, wow, you could take some of the points from that. And it wouldn't be hard to make a suspense movie along the same lines. Whereas some of them are just so far out of reach for the normal person that You know, if you tried to do something similar, it just wouldn't be able to happen, you know. So I thought it was interesting how they relied on the, just the old standards rather than trying to um, go into a bunch of the CGI and fancy stuff for for the first half of it. So what did you think of the suspense leading up to it? It was good. I agree with you that it was just like a, normal um christmas movie kind of reminded me of um what's that one with arnold schwarzenegger where they're all jingle all the way jingle all the way where they're just trying to like find those last minute gifts and stuff remind me a lot of that yeah they were uh looking for all the last minute stuff but it's basically just all about the gifts and about uh family that you don't necessarily want to be around um it wasn't about the anything even remotely close to the spirit of christmas i like that max just wanted to have everything how it used to be like how he remember from when he was like even littler than he was and i like having the grandma there It's kind of like the silent, awesome actress. Yeah, she was pretty cool in that part. And I liked that she spoke, I think it was German. I'm pretty sure it was German, but she didn't really speak much English throughout the movie until the end. And then she spoke a little bit. There comes a point when they actually start showing what's going on. What did you think of the gingerbread men? They were funny. I like when they were laughing. It sounded like, uh, that's, that was the one part that reminded me of gremlins is they sound like just the laughing little 
gremlin guys. Well, yeah, I, I take it as gremlins just because you have kind of a silly aspect to a lot of, like, the toys and the gingerbread men and stuff like that that were attacking. Um, those were Krampus's helpers, and they were they were enjoying their job. It was quite amusing. When they actually showed Krampus and the makeup, I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but it wasn't because of what they did specifically on his makeup. I've seen a couple of uh, different things before the movie came out and before we saw it that made it look like Krampus was going to be more of a wolf character or something along those lines. Maybe even like a uh, goat or a deer or something like that. And then when you actually see his face, it just wasn't what I was expecting. That part of it I was a little bit disappointed in, but it wasn't because they did a bad job on the makeup or anything like that. What were your thoughts on it? I know you had a different opinion of it. I really liked the makeup just because it was more practical and not CGI. Like, I liked that throughout the movie there wasn't much of that. I think the gingerbread men were CGI and that was, like, about it for the most part. Yeah, they were and I don't know, there were a couple of little robot toys or something like that that I don't know if they were puppet or CGI. I just really liked how... I mean, I you could tell that he's like half goat, half human, pretty much, it looked like. Because he had the hooves and like the snow and yeah. coming out of the fireplace and everything. I just like the realness factor on it. Yeah, the makeup was very practical. It really wasn't overdone or anything. It was kind of basic, but it was effective. It really didn't have to be more than what it was. Or just the practical creepy effect of uh, scaring a small child, it worked. And I thought the uh, makeup was very effective. It just wasn't quite what I was thinking it was going to be from the different things that I've seen. T-Fury had a shirt with Krampus on it, and that wasn't Krampus at all. So I don't know where they got the uh, original idea from. But that was the kind of thing that threw me off was everything I was seeing was saying it was going to be something else. I had skull with a open mouth and that kind of a look to it, which I thought with the overall design of the costume and everything, it was it was really good. They did a good job on that. I like when they showed the elves too. Their masks were really neat. It's not what I was expecting when elves came in. They were like these creepy creepy things <laughs> yeah that's right i remember thinking uh the elves had a really neat look to them overall and the masks were pretty cool i also really this is kind of off topic from the practical but i know there's another movie that i've seen it in but i'm just going to reference harry potter when they tell the story of the deathly hollows and they go into the animated in telling that story, that part of it. I really like that they, they also do that in Krampus telling the grandma's, Omi's uh, backstory on her her history with Krampus and what happened to her when she was little. I just think it's interesting how I've seen a couple of movies now do that when they're doing flashbacks or 
whatnot. There's always the animated thing. Beauty and the Beast, when they showed the backstory as to how he became the Beast, they went with a very stylized version of animation rather than straightforward. They had it on... It was like stained glass. Stained glass, yeah. They had stained glass windows with that telling the story rather than doing the full animation. So it's interesting when they can come up with a way of telling a story without just saying, well, here's a flashback, you know? Yeah, I really like that. It's more creative, makes it more interesting. Yeah, and it's a little more work, but it definitely stands out from the rest of the movie. And then you understand why Omi's so quiet. Yeah, yes you do. There's like a really big storm that kind of starts to set everything off. And Max notices a random huge snowman in their front yard. And it's like, it's not very creepy, but it's like kind of off-putting since he knows that like he didn't create it. (laughs) Then throughout the movie, just more and more snowmen show up in their front yard. And they get more and more creepy. Well, the snowmen always show up after someone has disappeared. Yeah, that's true, huh? Yeah, his sister disappeared and then the first snowman appeared. And then each time after someone disappears, there's a new snowman in the yard. So, next time you drive by someone's house and there's a snowman in the yard, just think about Krampus, you know. Also, the music to the whole thing was very cool. Um, They did like a creepy version of Christmas carols, which I liked. The composer, Douglas Pipes, he described his music as a collection of twisted Christmas carols with pagan thrown in. He incorporated the sounds of chains, bells bones and animal skin drums into the score and had choirs chant and whisper in different tongues. I think that was a big part of building the suspense to it because it was just all a little bit off center. But there wasn't any, especially in the lead up, you know, there really wasn't anything that you couldn't do if you just sat down and thought it out right, you know. And that's I really liked that aspect of it because he had it from a filmmaker standpoint and especially on a very limited budget, that's the kind of thing that I was looking at and going, all right, so, you know, you can have something really tense without having to go and spend a huge amount of money on it, you know. Not to say that this didn't have a huge budget, but, you know, it's... Up till that point, there really wasn't a large amount that was done outside of the realm of what you could do relatively easy. Just so that you guys know, if you haven't seen the movie, at this point, turn off the podcast. We're going to go into something here that you don't want to know about unless you've seen the movie. Turn it off. But come back. But come back, yes. Yes, you, sitting there, I see you. And the red shirt. Turn it off. Don't listen to this part if you haven't seen the movie. Turn it off and then come back. The entire family dies. Everything goes to black. And then and then Max wakes up. He's in his bed. It's Christmas morning. It's bright outside. Yeah, bright outside. Power's back on. Um, 
storm's done and over with. Goes downstairs, everyone who is dead is alive again. And everything is happy. Until he opens that one gift that has a bell from Krampus reminding him, you gotta behave or else, you know, you gotta believe in Santa or else the uh, end is very close, you know. And then as as he opens that up and he rings the bell, everyone kind of remembers what happened. So you have this whole uncomfortable moment of everyone kind of looking around at each other going, oh, yeah. That actually happened. (laughs) Yeah, that actually happened. And, And then it starts kind of zooming out. And you realize that the house is in a snow globe. And you see Krampus put the snow globe on a shelf in a tent with uh, dozens of other snow globes with little houses in them. And Casey and I, we both saw it and we both took it in different ways of what we thought that meant. The way I took it was more of Krampus is always going to be watching, kind of like a Santa Claus is always watching you. The snow globes are um, Krampus's way of keeping an eye on the people that he's visited and allowed to live. So I took it as basically a tool so that he could watch. But Casey had a little different perspective on that. I thought that it was kind of like um, a Groundhog's Day where they had to keep reliving Christmas Day over and over again for eternity. And that was their punishment. And that Krampus could shake it up and watch it for his enjoyment. Yeah. Considering the entire town was wrecked last we saw it before they woke up. You know, it could be... Well, they're the only survivors left in the town. And, you know, they're actually in the snow globe. I don't know. There's a few different ways you could take that whole scene, but I thought it was an interesting way of zooming out and showing that Krampus is still out there and he's watching you. He knows if you've been naughty, so stop being naughty. That sounded really wrong. (laughs) That sounded really, really wrong. (laughs) So what did you think of the movie overall? I really liked it. I, it reminded me of movies from when I was little. Like, it just, everything was so practical in it, and, I don't know, it whimsical in a way. If you can say that Krampus is whimsical, I don't know, but... Well, there was a lot of humor in it. There was humor, but it wasn't just the humor, it was... I don't know, it was just horror done how I like it, or, like, creepiness done how I like it. Yeah. It wasn't Tim Burton-y, but it had more of that feel to it. That more lighthearted, uh, kind of fun horror rather than... I don't even know if that's how I'd describe it. I can see how what you mean by Tim Burton, but it... It creeped me out on so many different levels, but they weren't just by watching like blood and guts kind of thing. I haven't. It's been a long time since I've come out of a movie and been like really excited about it. 
it was very fun, and you came out of it, like, super excited. I really liked the movie, but you were, like, totally stoked. So, one to five stars, what would you give it? Oh, i give it five. Yeah? Yeah. I want to buy the movie. I do. I want to buy that. That's going to be a Christmas movie. We're going to torture our children with that. <laughs> 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 I think I'm at about four stars on it, but it's one that I really like, so definitely I'll be one that we own. Yeah. Okay, so Stephanie and I will be doing a review on the movie, totally Christmas movie here. We'll be doing review of Die Hard, my personal favorite Christmas movie above all others. That one will be coming out really close to Christmas. If everything goes according to plan. Should be a couple days after Christmas. Or we may go ahead and release it early and have it on Christmas. If we have everything done. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. So thank you for coming on and doing the review with me. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And we will see you guys next time. And by the way, if you guys have been enjoying the show, please go on to iTunes and rate us. Biggest thing I think you guys can do to help us out is if you know someone who would enjoy the podcast, share it with them. Uh, Share it on Facebook. Do what you need to do to help get us some more listeners because it's a big help when we can get more listeners and uh, get the podcast out to more and more people. Hey listeners, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Film Underdogs or go on to our Facebook page, Film Underdogs. Be sure to follow us on iTunes or Stitcher, Beyond Pod, whatever podcast player you use, we'll be there. Always remember to follow your dreams and stay inspired.